Hi, I'm Jonathan Groves, and welcome to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. This is a podcast that explores pastoral ministry from an Anglican perspective. If you are a pastor, ministry leader, or an aspiring minister, I, along with my co-host, Matt Kennedy, pray that this podcast will help equip and encourage you in your ministry to Christ Church. This podcast is an arm of the pastoral training program, the Cranmer Fellowship, at Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Church of the Good Shepherd is a congregation committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of His life, death, and resurrection through the study, exposition, proclamation, and application of His Word, the Scriptures. If you would like more information about the Cranmer Fellowship, Church of the Good Shepherd, or if you want to reach out to us about this podcast, please do so by emailing us at cranmerfellowship.com at gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Well, we are back, or else I should say I am back. Uh, Matt is on vacation now. This podcast has been on a bit of a a hiatus as I was away in June. Uh, Went on vacation with my family. It was very good to be away. Um, went on some uh, some traveling, some some expeditions with my family. Um, also got really sick. That was not very fun. Uh, but I'm back, and I was hoping to get right back into recording uh, episodes uh, in July. But instead, I was busy actually getting our our website up. If you have not heard the announcement on Instagram or on this podcast, Church of the Good Shepherd, where Matt and I serve is launching a pastoral training program here in the destination of destinations, Binghamton, New York. Uh, Matt, for over a decade, has really naturally taken men under his wing, trained them for the ministry, uh, I being one of them. And now we're making this a more formal program. So if you um, aspire to the ministry or you know of someone who does, Uh, Go to thecranmerfellowship.com. You can get more information about our two-year program and begin praying and asking God if the Cranmer Fellowship is the next step in your pursuit of a call to ministry. Okay, well, like I said, Matt is on vacation. But before you turn off this episode because of that, uh, let me tell you that I have a fantastic guest with me today. Many of you will know him, but allow me to introduce him to you. I have with me the Reverend Dr. Lee Gatiss. Lee uh, is, well, he does quite a bit of things. Uh, He's on the editorial board of the Global Anglican. He's a trustee of the annual St. Anthelin Lecture. Did I say that right? Is it Anthelin? Yeah. Yeah, Anthelin Lecture. He's a member of the Latimer Trust Theological Workgroup. That also actually the, doesn't exist anymore. So that doesn't exist probably, anymore, everybody. We should probably get rid of that. <laughs> get rid of that on Church Society. Yeah, you can tell that I copied this from your website. Um, he's on the Church of England Evangelical Council um, and the Council of Affinity. He serves as a member of the Editorial Board of Studies in Puritanism and Piety. And he's also a lecturer in church history at Union School of Theology. Lee has been the director of Church Society since January 2013, uh, where he does quite a bit of stuff, but I'll allow him to uh, say exactly what he does. He's also an author. He's an editor of many books, one of which we will talk about today. 
Uh, but above all that, he's a, a husband and a father. He's married to uh, Carrie, and they have three children. Very good. Of course, uh, you can learn more about Lee um, by going to churchsociety.org. But Lee, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Jonathan. Nice to be here. Although sad not to see Matt, of course. I know. Yeah, I'm sure he he will be sad as well. So he's down in South Carolina, though. He's at the beach. Um, he's oh, not having too bad of a time. It's a tough life. It's, it's a, a tough t- life. <laughs> it's a tough life being a head pastor, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so, Lee, um, there's a lot I could ask you about what you do. You're a very busy man. Uh, but for those listeners who do not know, um, can you share a little bit about Church Society and what you what you guys do? Yeah, sure. I mean, Church Society is a very old, established Anglican evangelical organization working within the Church of England to reform and renew the church in biblical faith. That's our job to equip God's people to live God's word uh, and to do what we can within the old C of E. Uh, we we do that really through various means, and you can tell we're evangelical because they all begin with the same letter. We do publishing, politics, and patronage in a prayerful and part uh, and uh, partnership sort of way. Uh, so, in terms of publishing, we publish uh, books and that journal you mentioned, the Global Anglican that I'm the chairman of, um, and we have a magazine, we have a podcast, we churn out videos. Uh, and and blog posts so we're we're busy resourcing uh, folks within the church of england and beyond um, with good stuff um we're involved in all the politics the committees and synods of the church of england uh, in order to try and reform and renew things and keep us standing firm to the truth probably about 10 percent of the church of england's general synod would be church society members we work with many others who are on the same page as us um, on the big issues of the day. Uh, and we're also involved, what was the other P? So that's publishing and politics. We also do patronage, which is a very strange system within the Church of England, an old established thing going back to Anglo-Saxon days, I think, uh, where every church in the Church of England, all 12,000 or so of them, has a patron. So that when the minister, the vicar, the pastor, uh, dies and goes to glory, or just below that if they're promoted to the bench of bishops, uh, or if they just move on and go somewhere else, then it is the patron's job to find the new vicar and to present the, the the new pastor. So we have that role in about 130 different churches up and down the country, including one in Germany as well, in the Diocese of Europe, our church in Dusseldorf. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time as well as writing and speaking and uh, politicking, I suppose, uh, also visiting churches, preaching there, advising on uh, various matters of uh, patronage appointments, and so on. So yeah, that's that's Church Society. You can uh, find out more by visiting churchsociety.org. Very on good. Yeah. <laughs> you join us, you can buy our resources and so on. Yes, and, and you definitely should. I, um, you, uh, guys posted a, a Lenten series. Um, I think you guys typically will do that. Um, like art, you'll post articles. I, I, I read uh, the Lenten series where you took uh, George Herbert's book yeah. on, on pastoral ministry. That was very, very encouraging. Um, so yeah, a lot of resources on um, church society. Yeah. Like you said, publication is big. There's a lot of books um, there. Uh, yeah. You're your recent publication 
was at least was it the most recent publication uh the modern edit of the first book of homilies it's certainly one of our most recent things yes that's one right of the most recent ones um the first a modern edit of the first book of homilies or the first book of homilies in modern english i i want to discuss that book and and your your process for for making that edit but what i'd really like to do is i want to do that within a larger conversation of the homilies um and and talk about those them themselves because you've obviously seen the homilies as important enough to put them in modern english so let's let's talk about that how's it sound yeah that sounds good homilies good. are a very good thing to discuss yes well many of our listeners um are not anglican so this is going to be um very new uh, they may not know anything about the homilies um maybe even some anglicans don't know much about the homilies i'm not i'm i'm not sure um yeah. but uh let's let's dive into a background of the homilies and let's first go to the basic of basic questions what is a homily <laughs> a homily is really a sermon it's uh-huh. just an old fashioned word for the sermon um and so they they are sermons taken from the uh the 16th century 1547 they were published uh, and they are homilies designed to be read out in Church of England parish churches, particularly if the minister wasn't competent or qualified uh, and licensed to preach his own sermon. So <laughs> you you won during the Reformation. I mean, it's the height of the Reformation there in 1547 uh, in, in England. And you really want your ministers to be preaching the word every week, to be preaching good, sound, solid, Protestant reformed doctrine um and yet many of them are ignorant fellows who don't really know that um they they haven't read the bible they they haven't been trained in how to preach if anything they they've learned how to stumble their way through the latin mass wear the right clothes and uh, elevate the sacrament at the right moment and that's that's it so uh, while cranmer and others are busy trying to train people up uh, to to be preachers, and the universities are trying to uh, to train them and uh, you know give them good and academic grounding in the Bible and theology, church history, pastoral work. Uh, there needs to be a stopgap of some sorts. There needs to be some sermons that they could read out. And so, Cranmer and others uh, wrote these homilies. Uh, well, they probably preached them to start with, and then wrote them down in order to have them published as a sort of handbook for pastoral staff to be able to uh, have something to to say in the sermon slot every week at church. So how did that um, look at first? Because it sounds like um, the ultimate goal is to get priests to be able to open up their Bibles and preach the word of God themselves, right? Okay, of course, a, um, a freshly written, applied uh, sermon applied particularly to the congregation in front of you every Sunday. That's the goal. That's that's the gold standard. That's what uh, that's what the reformers wanted, and were working towards. But that is that is a longer term goal for them. During the Elizabethan period in England, at the end of the 16th century, um, you know, the number of ministers training at university um, and coming out and being licensed to preach their own sermons that grew. Uh, tremendously uh, during the period but back in 1547 things were not looking so bright and so they tried to put in place something um, as an example uh, a model 
for how to preach and to just to make sure that everybody in the country was hearing the gospel every week. Good sound teaching. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Cranmer and others, and Cranmer wrote some of these homilies. Who are some other people we know wrote these homilies? Edmund Grindle, my favorite Archbishop of Canterbury after Cranmer, was another one, um, the preacher's archbishop. Uh, he was another who wrote some of them. Uh, Bishop Jewell, John Jewell, who was a major influence in uh, the settlement of the Church of England in a Protestant and Reformed direction, uh, also wrote some of them. We don't know the names of every single person who um, is behind these. Some of them we can attach to specific names and some of them we can't. So it's uh, it's quite interesting in that way, um, not knowing who all the specific authors are, because they are actually an authorised volume um, or two. There are two books of homilies. Uh, they are authorised by the Church of England. So in some ways, it doesn't matter who the individual writers are. Unlike Calvinism and Lutheranism, uh, for example, or Wesleyanism, we are not a church based on one specific individual and their teaching. Uh, the Church of England is settled by Parliament and by, by the church um, as a collective endeavour in reformed evangelical ecclesiology. Uh, so in some ways, it doesn't matter who originated these. They were put out under the authority of the church uh, to be read actually under the authority of the king king edward the sixth good king edward uh, <laughs> of blessed memory who uh, wrote a preface which we've included in the volume uh, that we've published that's a good point because another question i had was uh if we knew of other reformers in in, in different places doing something similar but you're right you know, of course we have sermons from luther and sermons from calvin um but are there uh, were there other efforts in, in other places to have a, an authorized uh, list of sermons like in the Church of England? That's a great question. One of the most famous, I think, from that time would be the sermons of Heinrich Bullinger, uh, who's a continental reformer, followed Zwingli uh, in Switzerland. Um, and he wrote 50 sermons that he organized in five decades. So five decades of 10 sermons each meet equals 50 sermons. Uh, and these were published together and were often seen as a sort of standard text, both on the continent and here. So there are records of bishops in English dioceses setting their clergy the, the, the task and demanding really that they buy a copy of the decades and read them regularly. Uh, and take notes and show their notes to the archdeacon uh, to prove that they've written, uh, that they've read uh, Bullinger's decades. And so this is a sort of established way of doing things. Uh, there would be others on the continent. Calvin's sermons were, were published too, um, and uh, Luther's sermons are part of his um, uh, deposit of confessional material that Lutherans are meant to read and follow. So, yeah, it's not an unusual tactic, um, but I think maybe had an unusual success in, in many ways here. So the, the homilies, uh, the, the Church of England's homilies are referenced in our confessional doctrinal statement, the 39 Articles of Religion. 
in Article 35, it tells us that the uh, the two books of homilies contain godly and wholesome doctrine most necessary for these times. So uh, that's high praise, and the, the homilies are then listed in the article as well. High praise, and therefore gives them a sort of confessional status um, that is uh, important for us to note today. I think it, um, the article on justification too, doesn't it uh, refer to the homily of justification? That's right. In homily 11, uh, yeah. we're told, uh, it gives us a brief definition of the, the wholesome doctrine of justification by faith alone, that uh, Protestant distinctive, uh, which you can read about more fully in the homily, um, the homily on salvation or, or on justification, um, as it's called. Yeah, that's a terrific exposition, really, of the Protestant doctrine of justification sola fide, by faith alone. Yeah. Um, something you said, um, because I did a, a little recon before this interview, I listened to a podcast that you did um, uh, already on the homilies, and it's something that you, you said stuck out to me, um, was that, uh, you know, yes, you know, we have the thirty the 39 articles, which are our doctrinal statement. The homilies are so unique in that uh, it it gives us our our theology, but in a sermon format like that, that's different than a theology textbook. That's different than a doctrinal statement. Sermons, homilies are meant to be preached and and to exhort people. So this is theology to exhort people and encourage people, um, which I, just, I I love that. Um, I love that nature of them. Um, that they are, it's like a doctrinal statement on fire, really. Um, it, let me <laughs> just right. read, I want to, for those who don't, who, who haven't um, read any of the homilies, let me just read this one paragraph. Um, this is from uh, homily three, um, entitled uh, Salvation by Christ Alone. And this is just how it opens. And tell me if this is not just a wonderful thing to say, hey, I believe this, right? Let me just say this real quick. This is the homily that's referenced in Article 11. So is it, it's, it's three, okay. This is the one, yeah. This is what it says. Because, be, because all people are sinners and offenders against God and breakers of his law and commandments, therefore no one can, by their own acts, works, and deeds, however good they seem, be justified and made righteous before God. Everyone of necessity is constrained to seek for another righteousness or justification to be received from God's own hands. That is to say, the cancellation, pardon, and forgiveness of their sins and trespasses in such things as they have offended. And this justification or righteousness, which we receive by God's mercy and Christ's merits embraced by faith, is taken, accepted, and counted by God as our perfect and full justification and that's just how it opens <laughs> a one just a wonderful and encouraging um paragraph there um taken from your edit by the way um oh, well yeah. i could tell <laughs> so um you know i want to talk a little bit about this um reformation of preaching in the church of england i've heard from many people whenever i'm talking whenever we're talking about Anglicanism, the conversation typically centers around the Eucharist or the liturgy, and especially uh, when people who know a little bit about Anglicanism but aren't Anglicans, and if they find out that I'm an Anglican, like they're like, oh, like, you know, they want to talk about all the liturgy and all the Eucharist. But, and, and that's great. Like the Reformation of the liturgy, 
you know, the Lord's table, all of this is extremely important and um, wonderful parts of our worship, but we don't talk a lot about the preaching uh, and the heart of the English reformers for preaching to be um, central in in the heart of uh, of the church. Um, it seems like the homilies definitely played a role in that, and we see that that obviously was a very important aspect of the Reformation. Um, what uh, were there other efforts? Like alongside the homilies um, to build up preachers, and like were there um, schools that were founded or um, like training programs or anything like this, um, where preachers began to um, to grow in their their ability to expound the scriptures? Yeah, that's right. So we don't just want to enlighten people's minds. We want to warm their hearts. And so the homilies will take the uh, generally the doctrine that we find in the thirty nine articles. Um, and as you say, they will sort of light the blue touch paper, set it on fire in order to set our hearts on fire with love for God. That's the goal. The goal isn't just to get our doctrine correct and all nailed down. It's to warm the heart and to draw people to Christ, um, to trust him, him alone for their salvation, but also to love him more um, and for him to take up their um all the space in their heads and their hearts uh, and so give them a warm assurance of faith throughout their lives and even to the point of death there's a homily about the fear of death um which is just a wonderful piece of pastoral theology so that's what they're trying to do and at the same time like you say there we, we need to train up preachers to do this themselves um, and so there were places, I'm here in Cambridge, uh, there are colleges here like Emmanuel College, which were founded around this same sort of time in order to, to prepare and train preachers. That was their raison d'etre. That was the reason that they were founded uh, and created in order to supply the Church of England with biblical preachers. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. That is uh, an essential part of Reformation. Um, it's clearly right that we have to get the Lord's Supper right, particularly in, in distinction um, to the, the medieval mass. Uh, so the Lord's Supper, the doctrine of um, communion, the Eucharist, um, is a central doctrine in the Reformation. You know, they often summarize the Reformation using those five solas. I mean, that's a modern way of doing it. The, the solas of the Reformation, sola fide, sola gratia, uh, solas Christus, solideo gloria. I missed one out. Which one did sola I Sola scriptura. Thank you very much. Uh, so there they are, just testing you. Just, you see, you did very well. Uh, and that's often, that's a useful summary. But um, the reformers like Cranmer and Ridley and Latimer, these very famous bishop, bishops uh, and reformers, they didn't die because they were preaching sola fide. They didn't die because they were preaching sola scriptura. They died because they wouldn't go along with transubstantiation in the Roman mass. Uh, and so actually we should be adding a sola, if you like, to that understanding of the Reformation um, from a Reformation perspective itself, um, that they believe that the bread and the wine in communion are solar bread. You know, they're only bread. <laughs> they don't become the body and blood of Christ physically and literally, um, that we feed on Christ in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving, as the Book of Common Prayer puts it. Um, and so that is a, it's a hugely central doctrine, particularly if you're going to die for it. <laughs> um, however, it just having the Lord's Supper right isn't 
the only way to, isn't the, the best way to reform and renew the church in biblical faith. We need people to be tucking into the whole counsel of God in his words and understanding biblical doctrine um, as a whole, not just on the Lord's Supper. So, yes, it's important to revise the liturgy uh, so that people can hear it in English um, and shorn of all its false teaching and superstitious practices, like the reservation of the sacrament and processions and bowings down and uh, all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, you know, the, the transubstantiation, elevation of the mass. You know, we've got to get rid of that stuff. And Cranmer does in the prayer book. But then that isn't the, the whole job done. And, and to secure the longer term reform and renewal of the church, you need to set the word of God free uh, because it is, as the homily, uh, homily number one it's itself on Holy Scripture says, it is food for your soul. Um, and so if you don't have food for your soul, it doesn't matter if you're getting everything else right. <laughs> uh, you're going to die without that food. That's right. You know, when Paul is, is talking to Timothy about what to do before he comes, he's not saying, hey, make sure your liturgy is very beautiful. Uh, you know, make sure all of that is in order. No, what does he say? He says, preach the word, right? Um, do that until I until I come. And rightly understood, the Lord's Supper is, of course, a visible word. And so it is, yeah. I think, it's part of that. But it is curious how in all of those pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and in fact, in, in many of Paul's letters, there's not much about the Lord's Supper. It is mentioned, of course, 1 Corinthians. Um, but the central thing for him that he tells pastors to focus on is preaching the word refuting false teaching living out the word themselves and um timothy as a bishop is told to enforce those things um in in courts and um within churches so it's preaching the word is the yeah. thing that you need to really set free if you want to see pastoral growth spiritual growth in people and the long-term reform and renewal of the church yeah, and it's the preaching of the word that really, I mean, even undergirds that reformation of the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, you're right. What are you inviting people to, um, to oh. to the table, right? You go to the pulpit and you tell them, you preach God's word to them, and that produces faith, and then and then faith goes to the table, right? And so it's yeah. it's beautiful how they work work together. It, right? it understood well. I mean, I think the liturgy is a form of preaching. Mm -hmm. um, does preach it teaches doesn't it yeah. and that's why you we needed to reform the liturgy because the medieval mass was teaching all kinds of things that were unhelpful for people's spiritual growth um and their growth in the truth so you've got to reform liturgy to make it preach and teach true doctrine um but you only do that when you also have the sermons when you have <laughs> you know consistent preaching and teaching in the sermon, in the service itself. Yeah, all of them working together, right? Because people listen to liturgy week in and week out, and they don't really think about what it means in the end. Uh, and so sometimes we need to be pointed back to those old hallowed words, mm. rather than just falling asleep because they're, um, you know, we, we know them, they're familiar, they're comfortable. Um, we sometimes need to be arrested in our tracks and told mm. what they mean and reminded of what the, those words mean. And preaching can do that. Uh, it can take words from liturgy or from creeds and confessions that we might be familiar with 
and say, hey, did you realize that this actually means this? Mm. That that should apply to us in the following five ways. Or if you're a Puritan, in the following 27 ways. <laughs> 16 subpoints for each way. Um, you know, but the preaching is is meant to take some of that and actually screw it into people's souls, I like to say. Mm, yeah. uh, it's a screwdriver. Preaching is the screwdriver that pushes it into people's souls so yeah. that it sticks in a way that liturgy may not. Yeah, that's very good. I, what about today? Were we moving from the Reformation? That was a desire. Are we in the same? Are we in the same boat uh, today? Do, um, what can the homilies do for for priests? Let's say, let's say uh, today. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think we. The reason I put this book together in, you know, I published the the Church of England's official sermons in modern English um, because people just aren't familiar with this stuff. They don't know it. So they've not read them. If they've read the 39 articles, which, to be honest, we can't guarantee nowadays, can we? Um, they might have come across the homilies there and perhaps dipped in if they've found it. But um, it's been not the easiest thing in the world to get hold of the, the homilies. There is now, just in, in the last few years, a critical edition of uh, the official homilies and some other homilies. Um, and that's all very useful, but it's obviously an academic and critical edition. Um, so what we needed was something in modern English so that the ordinary person and the ordinary pastor can pick it up and actually understand it without too much trouble. Um, so I, I did that because we need to have access to our confessional resources like that. If we're going to use them, if we don't use them, we lose them. So it's in, in all these arguments about what is Anglicanism and our Anglican identity crisis or midlife crisis, as I've called it somewhere, um, we, we need to go back to our roots. What, what are our foundations doctrinally and so on? And so we need to get this stuff out. So having a version in modern English with the footnotes to help people understand things that they that might not be immediately apparent was I thought a really important um, project. Um, I don't think that I would necessarily want to just read these out to my congregation every week. As I say, the ideal is that a preacher well, who is well-trained will know his own congregation and produce a freshly composed, um, freshly applied sermon every week. However, these can be useful as a touchstone of doctrine and application and they should be referred to and, and phrases from them could be used to illustrate that what we're saying is in line with Anglican doctrine. Um, they're a great model for how to do preaching in some ways, uh, in a topical way. Um, so that, that's good. And, and they talk about subjects that we may we may avoid these days. I mean, when did you last preach on the fear of death and how that's a a thing that the word can help us with when did you last preach on um swearing uh or uh what's it called the whoredom and fornication as the <laughs> homily there is a homily on that on that's a great title they have on your yeah, facebook exactly. sermon <laughs> <laughs> there is a sermon all about uh sexuality um not perhaps with the identity and uh, modern feminist and work takes on those things, but there's a, a, a homily expanding the traditional Christian ethic of marriage and sexuality and how sex outside of marriage is a sin to be avoided. Um, to update the language a little bit, and I think we find that it, it does help us to understand what traditional Anglican doctrine is, um, that we are 
um, Protestant, not Catholic. We're Reformed, not Armenian or Lutheran. And we are evangelical because we're committed to the gospel and evangelism. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's that's why I think they're useful today. I have actually preached all the way through them on YouTube. Uh, you can split the, the homilies into parts. If you preach one um, from start to finish, it's about 45 minutes to an hour. But uh, in the Elizabethan periods, they were split into parts. So each homily is split into one, two, three parts, something like that. Um, and they will take 10, 15 minutes to read. So th they could be useful today still as um, something for your midweek group uh, to, to have a look at. That that could work. That's great. We're actually in bedtime our... Reading too. <laughs> bedtime reading, too. Bedtime reading. Yeah, it's perfect bedtime reading. Um you're reading them, did you say? Yeah, yeah. We're we're teaching through them. Um, we're using your book. We're teaching through them in our Christian ed hours. So in between both of our services, uh, I I did the uh, first one. So I'm reading Holy Scripture, and that was wonderful. Um, and then last week we had a guy uh, teach on the second one on the the misery of all mankind. Um, so that that was a that was a fun one too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we. I mean, I've I've found your your edit very helpful. One of the things that I um, find the most helpful is your addition of um, like subtitles and or, or like headers. Like yes. you, you you kind of you take the homily and then you 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 make them into sections as well, and that mm -hmm. is very helpful for teaching. That was very helpful for me and thinking through the different parts while I, while I taught that homily. Um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit of, a little bit more about your, your edit. I, I actually uh, messaged the guys who are teaching through this. I said, Hey, I'm going to actually talk to Lee on Friday. What do you, what would you want to ask him <laughs> about ah. the edit or about the homily? So um, I got a, I got a couple questions from them, but um, mainly, mainly revolved around your, your process and and how, how things Ooh went whenever you you did this um this book um so perhaps we can go there when you sat down to um edit these what did that look like did you have did you just have like your your own copy of the homilies and then you you just copied and then you changed words or what, what did that process look like for you <laughs> yeah I, I um yeah i did i got the um the original publication as the 1547 publication so i had that up in front of me and then i typed it in um i typed it in uh, correcting and updating the language as i went but i mean I, it's a light edit in many ways because I, I haven't I haven't done anything that would I mean if you read it out to Cram if Cramer came back from the dead and we read it out to him he'd say well yeah that's me that I wrote that <laughs> um, he would absolutely recognize it um, but so I have updated things that we just don't do anymore so silly endings to words you know we I don't say um, Seth or Hath or these and thys you know I've just updated those. Um, very, very light edit. So there's various archaic, obscure and obsolete words in there, too, that we just don't use anymore. Things like heretofore, for as much, minished. Um, I've made I've made it say cancellation. That's how I could tell you read my edition out earlier, because you, it talked about the cancellation of debts or sins. Uh, the original says remission, but we don't really talk about remission of debt. 
you know, if you actually had a debt with your bank, they wouldn't call you into a meeting to talk about the remission of your debt. They'd call you in for a meeting about the cancellation of your debt, maybe, or the payment of it. Um, <laughs> and if we in international debt circles, you know, we're talking about that um, financially, you talk about cancellation or forgiveness of debt perhaps. Uh, so I, I've, I've made it say cancellation instead of remission, just so it's not a churchy word that people don't understand anymore. Um, I think I updated heathens to unbelievers. Um, okay. The word miserable comes several times. Now, you can use the word miserable in 1547 to mean someone who's a bit down in the dumps. Oh, I'm feeling really miserable because the Church of England's in such a mess. Mm. Um, but it doesn't always mean that. It's based on the Latin words um, for for pitiable, someone who deserves our pity. So I updated miserable in those cases to mean pitiable, someone who deserves our pity. Because if we put miserable all the time, that's come to mean someone who's a bit down in the dumps and sad. Um, and I didn't want it to be misunderstood. So that's the kind of updates that I've I've put in. Um, I mean, also, there are words like ague that were used in, in the first homily. He talks in, in very early on in the uh, first homily about ague. I'm like, what on earth is that? So, uh, you know, I have a historical dictionary. I can look those things up. But it just it means a fever. So why not just put the word fever in there so that nobody needs to worry or stumble over that? Um, there wasn't a, there is an approach to editing where you could keep the same words in and then just have a footnote to define it. So in other projects that I'm working on, the complete edition, the complete works of John Owen um, that, that I'm doing with Crossway, we are keeping Owen's text the same, but we're adding footnotes to explain. So the watchword there was change, uh, explain, don't change. Whereas with this project, because I wanted it to be a usable volume by anybody, I've often just changed something to make it more up to date, um, but not e everywhere. This is not the message version. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that version of the Bible, the message, which is a very kind of street level paraphrase of the Bible that you know, is almost recognizable as the, the Bible, but not really. Um, <laughs> it's not that. I haven't done that. It's more a kind of ESV update of the Bible, uh, of the homilies, uh, <laughs> in that sort of sense. So, yeah, I had the original text in front of me while I was going, and I basically was using that as my uh, source. I did have um, a couple of other editions of the homilies that I referred to, the later Elizabethan um, reprints of the homilies and later, um, and also Gerald Bray's critical edition and a couple of other editions that have been published in um, the, the last couple of centuries. That was They were very helpful, particularly when it came to adding footnotes, though I have to say I did discover errors um, of formatting and page numbers and things like that in the footnotes in those other editions that I've corrected. So I went back and checked every single source. Um, I've had, so I've added a footnote and often to a modern English translation of a work that was being quoted in Latin um, because the homilies do quote Augustine and mm -hmm. uh, Chrysostom and all sorts of other people. Uh, and so I went back and found the Latin text that was, or the Greek text that was being quoted, and then thought I would try and find a, a modern, up-to-date English translation of that if people wanted to find it and chase up the source. So the idea is to be usable and, and useful 
as a volume like that. And nobody else had done that um, in that detail. Um, and I was able to check and correct lots of things as well on the way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I work at home here with a, a laptop, two screens, sometimes an iPad and a pile of books on my desk. So it was a it was it was quite a focused and intense experience doing those homilies and and took quite a lot of work and painstaking agonizing um over every word that was put down how long did it take you now you're going to tell me you've spotted a typo or something and I'm no 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 not yet <laughs> how long did it take you to to finish gosh no i'm not sure um I can't remember now. Um, months. I mean, a long time. I started work on it many years ago. Um, and then I used that as a way of encouraging Gerald Bray to get on with his edition, um, which he then published. Um, and then I came back to it because I thought we needed something, not just a critical edition, but a, a more up-to-date modern take on it. Mm. So, yeah, a good solid few months of of painstaking work went into that yeah well you know this is the uh the very heart of uh the english reformer is to get the text in the in the language of the people and get it in, in their language hands understand it of the people yes that's, that's right so get it to them so they can read it um you know all those critical editions are great and we need those uh, but we also need uh, uh yours um is a, a helpful helpful resource uh, were there any like uniquely challenging words or phrases that took a while i mean that that what was that a grew was, was that what a fever is ague the ague ague yes yes i don't even know if i'm pronouncing it correctly i mean who <laughs> uses words like that anymore um <laughs> yeah. well i did agonize over remission as i, I mentioned mm -hmm. that one i did agonize should i keep this one in and just explain it every time it comes up um yeah there's also um there are also patterns of grammar and syntax in in the reformers i mean i'm i live in the 16th and 17th centuries academically so i can easily read these guys through and make sense of it usually um my phd was on john owen and he speaks like someone uh, when his writing is a bit like the roughly dashed off translation of a piece of thinking done in ciceronian latin <laughs> so if you're used to reading their ways of talking then it's fine and it is easy, but we're not nowadays. Mm. Um, so there were some sometimes where it wasn't the words that I was trying to update, but I was trying to get across what does this sentence actually mean? <laughs> you know, so you take a sentence of the homilies and I understood it, but I thought if I just read that out to my congregation here in Cambridge in the 21st century, they just look at me blankly and think, what on earth is he saying? Um, so that was more difficult than just words that needed a bit of an update which you can do with a dictionary that was just thinking how do i translate this phrase this sentence in into a, a way that's understandable today but respects the text and doesn't mess with it so you know not doing an niv or message interpretative paraphrase trying to keep as many of the words that cranmer or whoever had used but putting them maybe in an order that would be more understandable today that mm -hmm. that was cha more challenging as a translator yeah because you want yeah because yeah. you yeah you you want to get the the thought across and if you're going to be 
changing the way it's phrased. Yeah, that's so easy to get it to say something else. So yeah, that's yeah, yeah that would be challenging. Man. Um well I think as well, I mean other challenging parts of it were adding the footnotes. So the yeah. as mentioned, some of the earlier editions have um have been very good at putting footnotes in where they think something's being quoted. I did check every single one. Um, and so I had to go back to, you know, the, the critical editions of the Greek and Latin fathers, for example, find the page, make sure it was correct, um, make sure that the phrase that they were referring to was actually there um, and, and then put that in and then finding modern up to date versions of that as well and it is great the homilies in that sense because it made me really appreciate what we've got here as i say in the introduction um there are a lot of different voices here from church history which shows that reformed teaching protestant teaching in these homilies is really a restoration of an ancient christian tradition it isn't a brand new thing that the reformers invented de novo um, so you'll find here quotations from Ambrose, Anselm, Augustine, Basil, sorry, Basil, I'll pronounce <laughs> it in an American way to translate, um, Bernard, uh, Camatius, Chrysostom, Cyprian, Didymus, Fulgentius, Gregory, Hilary, Jerome, Martin of Tours, Ecumenius, Origen, Photius, Prosper, Theophylact, all these guys from all over the world, you know, of the time. So that represents a global and diverse civilization from Italy, Algeria, Turkey, France, Tunisia, Egypt, Croatia, North Macedonia, etc. So, you know, Anglicanism has always been a global thing in that sense, even when it was just in England, because it was trying to say we are part of this global movement. Um, and, and most strikingly, we find that in that homily that you read from earlier, in the homily on salvation or homily on justification, when he's trying to um, say that we preach justification by faith alone, and this is the ancient Christian doctrine, this is not something we've invented, um, that the homily just throws out all kinds of people who taught that in the past. And it was a joy, but a, a, a chore in some ways, looking them all up. And so we I have on pages 58 through to page 60 um, tons of footnotes where he's just thrown in. Oh, and this person also said this. Oregon also said this and many other authors. And I've added them all in um, where people said they believed in justification sola fide. Um, so that was those were particularly hard work, those couple of pages adding the footnotes. But it was a joy doing it because it showed me how global this um, teaching on salvation has always been how how catholic it is with a small c yeah uh, it was really it was the roman catholic church of the 16th century which was moving away from that catholic doctrine of justification by faith alone um which makes the the roman church the sect really and um, the church of england part of the continuation the renewal of that small c catholic tradition uh, so that was that was doctrinally and uh, intellectually stimulating to do those parts of the work i bet yeah seeing once again the catholicity of of everything that we believe being right there in the homilies um yeah. that's great um well let me ask you uh before we um end uh do you as in your in your work i know this is um 
This is just the first book of homilies. Are, are we going to get number two? <laughs> yes. I, you're not the first person to ask me that, interestingly. <laughs> um, yes. So there are two books of homilies mentioned in the articles and uh, that were published. The first book is these 12 sermons that I've done in the first book of homilies. The second book is three times as long. So there are 20 plus sermons in that, but the text itself is three times as long. So uh, as you can see in my edition is what, uh, 200 pages. So the, the second book of homilies is going to be 600 pages or so. So that's a much bigger work. Um, I've nibbled at it, but haven't started in earnest yet on that. But it is my plan to do that because we should have both. Again, it's another confessional text that we should have access to. And there's also some great stuff in there, particularly um, the, the homily against idolatry and the superfluous decking of churches, as it's called. Okay. Idolatry and the superfluous decking of churches. That's one That's one homily? Well, it's one homily, but it's about okay. three times as long as every other homily. So it really is a mini tract against idolatry within churches statues and windows and icons and all that stuff heavily attacked i'm sure you'll enjoy that one i yeah i will <laughs> <laughs> Lee, i tried to quote it to matt once or twice in the past and it didn't go down too well but um uh perhaps i should have been more um, <laughs> careful about that when i was oh standing. man if you if you were on right now i wonder what you'd say well, he's not. So well, you're safe. That's, well, when I when I do the, when I do the second book of homilies, you'll have to have me back on. With we Matt will, yeah. To talk about the superfluous decking of churches, and that again is something that, like you said, people say, "Oh yes, we love the beauty of Anglican worship." Well, <laughs> read that homily against idolatry and the superfluous decking of churches, and you'll find that um, foundational Anglicanism is not in favour of some of those things that you think are nice about Anglicanism. Um, that being said, however, one of my favourite homilies is homily 12 in um, uh, in my edition against strife and contention. The homily mm. against strife and contention, which is a terrific piece of work telling us to behave ourselves and uh, not just be contentious for the sake of it. So I love that one. It's very good um, and a, a, a real challenge to us. Um, in these days when there's much strife and contention in churches and it's easy for those of us on the side of the angels in my view um, who are trying to maintain true doctrine biblical doctrine it's easy for us to do that in a way which is full of strife and contentiousness so that's a, a real challenge to us that homily yeah i would i would assume that that i mean it's that's that's everywhere but especially with where you're at right there in the in the heart of a lot of that that fighting so yeah yeah what was interesting to me there is finding that um in the the text in 1 Corinthians where it talks about um uh those who live in a certain way will not inherit the kingdom of god we're very keen to point out that um the, the homosexuality words that come in those texts and how clear that is on the issue of the day within many of our churches on um, the blessing of same-sex relationships and so on, uh, and that the Bible is clearly against that, but it's also against it in the same text, against um, the sort of contentiousness that many of us are also engaged in. So we mm. must be careful there to read the whole text and let it challenge us 
not just challenge those that we're against. As the old saying goes, when you point the finger at someone else, there are three pointing back at you. Um, so be careful with that. That that was a good challenge. I enjoyed yeah. reading about that in that homily. Well, it sounds like it was a fruitful endeavor for you, you personally then too, doing this project. Definitely. I learned a lot. I learned a lot, you know, intellectually, academically, um, about Anglicanism, about the history, but also, you know, it warmed my heart and challenged my soul and fed me, which is what these sermons are intended to do. Um, I guess one thing we didn't mention so far is that these are not, um, they're not, it's not consecutive expository preaching in the sense that many might be used to, um, which we love, you know, it's not um, a, a series of homilies through one book of the Bible or through a gospel or something like that. It is expository in the sense that many verses of scripture and passages of scripture are taken in the homilies and expounded. So they do expound the scriptures in that sense, but the arrangement is a topical one. So they're arranged around topics, um, which I think is a legitimate thing for us to do, as long as we're careful to show that we are actually getting our teaching from the Bible. Um, and it, of course, has a biblical precedent. So there is really no biblical precedent for the modern practice of consecutive expository preaching. I mean, Calvin and others did that, which is great. And Chrysostom did it in the early church, took a passage of scripture and worked through a book of the Bible consecutively. That's a great way of teaching. I think it has a lot of um, advantages um, and very few cons, if you like. Um, but it isn't the way that the Bible preaches. So if you take Hebrews, which is a sermon, I think, it's called a word of exhortation, which the only other time that phrase is used is when Paul is in the synagogue in Acts 13, preaching a sermon. Um, it's a word of exhortation. And what does Hebrews do? He takes various passages of scripture and expounds them one at a time for a topical sermon on perseverance in the faith. So actually, <laughs> that's a biblical method of preaching. And so I think topical preaching provided its expository as well, and could show it's taking its teaching from the scriptures is uh, is good and a, a wholesome and godly thing to do. I'm glad you said that because um, that that was that has been something on my on my mind too. Thinking through how is this going to be helpful for uh, a preacher and an, an expositor of God's word whenever it, it hands hands you something topical. But you're right, um, it, it does do that. It does follow in the steps of Hebrews, doesn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it's trying to teach a systematic theology in some ways to the people of England in the 16th century who didn't know it. They, they hadn't really seen the Bible and they couldn't read it in their own language and they, it wasn't read out to them in their own language very often. Um, so it's trying to say, OK, well, here is biblical doctrine on all of these key issues of the day. What is scripture? What is sin? How am I saved? How do I live a godly life? Um, what do I think about death? You know, mm. those are the things that you needed to hear about. And so it's trying to do a systematic teaching. Now, you wouldn't want that all the time. I don't think that a topical way of preaching should be our standard fare every Sunday. Um, but I, I do think there's a place for it. Most definitely. Yeah. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for um, giving us a little bit of insight into the homilies as a whole and kind of lo looking at that briefly that 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 background 
um, in, in the past. Um, that's very helpful. Um, is there uh, anything else um, you, you want to say about um, the homilies, your, your, uh, your process, any, any, anything that jumped out at you whenever you were doing anything that you'd like to like to share with people? No, I think the only thing I wanted to add is um, buy the book, uh, churchsociety.org or Amazon or, or any good books that are near you. Go buy the book now. It's available in hardback, paperback and on Kindle and uh, electronic copies are available from our website as well. So there we go. Oh, you've got your showing me your Kindle version. Well done. Um, yeah. So buy the book, read it. Don't just listen to podcasts about it. Go and buy the book. Um, <laughs> I don't get royalties from it <laughs> so i'm not saying it for that reason um i'm saying go and buy it because it's good stuff um and it will help you as an anglican um in the modern identity crisis that anglicanism faces but also in your everyday ministry um it will warm the hearts enlighten the mind and uh give you um good material for the battles that face us in the church right now how about that <laughs> there you have it uh if you um listening want to find uh, more of Lee Gatiss, uh, you can head over to churchsociety.org. And like he said, all, all, all their books are over there um, as well. Um, yeah, get his, get a, get a pile of books from Church Society. All of them are great. I especially get this um, new edition of the homilies. Um, you can also, if you just want to hear more of Lee, you can just go to YouTube, I'm sure, and just put in Lee Gatiss, and you'll find many lectures of of uh, him talking about wonderful things. That you, you there's a playlist on. on YouTube, on the Church Society channel on YouTube. There's a playlist with all of all of my readings from the homilies. I preach the homilies at YouTube. So you can there you go. Read. That's how it should be done, right? It, many listen other listen yeah. to them as you're as you read along as you listen to. Uh, Lee preached them. That's what. That's what. If you're what, really astute, you'll. If you're reading with the book in front of you, you'll notice I changed my mind on some translation issues <laughs> between preaching them, putting them on the website like that, and then actually in the published version. So there you go. If you want to look at do some redaction criticism, that's the way forward. <laughs> if any anyone listening is interested in doing that, there you go. You can do it. <laughs> PhD students in two hundred yes. years' time will be fascinated by such minutiae. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, thank you for taking the time to do this. It's been great talking with you. And also with you, as we say in liturgy. Uh, my and Matt's prayers go to you, uh, your family, and everything you're doing over there. So God bless, man. Thank you. And with that, that'll conclude today's episode. Lord willing, we will see you next week.